everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And we're live in Philly together. Yes, it's it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. You've been such a hospitable host. I was so impressed. So I came in on Sunday and we hung out on your roof deck porch and we're just kind of hanging out. It was the first time I met Jake and Winnie. I made a new best friend, best friends with Winnie. Yes, Winnie is in love. However, however... <laughs> Not however. I was so impressed that Jake apparently listened to the podcast and he bought orange vanilla seltzer for me. He did. He told me when we were at the grocery store, he was like, I wrote down the drinks that Becca likes when I was listening to the episode. And I was like, I love you. That's so nice. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about today's episode. We have my friend Felicia Jones on to do an Ask an HR Rep episode to answer all of your career questions in a more thoughtful way and from a different lens, where whenever we answer career questions, it's from the lens of being employees and managers versus this is from the HR point of view. And I'm really excited for you to hear this discussion. It was so interesting. I honestly learned so much. I did not know what to expect, but my mind was blown. Even as someone who just works for themselves with themselves for the most part, I feel like I just, I learned so, so much. It was such a powerful reframe for me on a lot of things. I just, I would have answered so many of the questions so differently than she did. And what she said made so much sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you guys are going to all like it. Well, before we get into that, let's do some highs and lows. Let's. So... I want to hear about your seltzer fame, wow. seltzer celebrity, if you will. My high is that I've been formally recognized by the seltzer community. So I've joked on this podcast before that my my life's dream, my life's work really, is to become a seltzer influencer. I don't really care about other types of fame or fortune. I care a lot about seltzer. <laughs> And for years, Grace always gets press packages from LaCroix, and I just want to be on that list, and I don't know how to do that. And so the other weekend when I was visiting Grace in Charleston, she was taking forever to get ready, and she had gotten a press package with the new cherry blossom flavor that LaCroix has. And so I made a little video. Uh, it was just on my stories, tasting it. Spoiler it was terrible. It tasted like soap. But I told the world, I put it out into the universe that I want to be a seltzer influencer. And Spindrift reached out to me and asked if they could send me some seltzer, to which I replied, duh. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. And they sent me like eight cases of seltzer. So now I'm seltzer rich. I've only tried one of the flavors so far, the blood orange. It was good. But I'm, I'm really happy to be making inroads in the seltzer community. To be honest... Probably more honest than I should be, but you know, uh, they haven't really bought me. They just they just sent me <laughs> eight cases of seltzer. I'm not on the payroll yet. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really hoping to use this to get on Polar's radar, which is kind of my ultimate ultimate goal here. Have you tagged them in a bunch of Instagram stories? Like, if you look at your DMs, is it it's, just it's you just talking a to yourself? One sided <laughs> stream of me tagging. That's them. like me and Calpac with the the Luca Duffel and Bag. They're just ignoring me, and I'm still like, I will support you regardless. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm feeling, I'm I'm feeling like a girl who's realized all her hopes and dreams being gifted free seltzer. I feel like this is the beginning of something something pretty big. I hope so, man. I I'm I'm really happy for you. Tell me about your high. So my high is something that took me way too long, but I finally forced myself to print out the printed manuscript of the first draft of my book. 
And I don't know why it took me so long, like literally months and months, because I, I finished the first draft at the same time as you at the end of December, the end of 2021. And I accidentally printed it just single-sided. So it legitimately looks like, like, I don't know, the Old Testament of the Bible. It's gigantic. It's like a manifesto. Um, but it felt so satisfying to pick it up, to have it in my hands, to like actually see the word somewhere other than a screen was like the thing that I needed to just move forward. So I've been going through with like a first round of just general plot, theme, character edits, and then I'll go back a second time. But it's been really fun and I feel really excited about it for the first time in a long time. So I, yeah, I just have this like renewed energy about it and I'm excited. I'm I'm so so happy for you. Thank you. I was telling you last night, I feel like the – I'm curious to hear once you get into it what you find, but I feel like the editing process has been preferred for me versus the writing process because you're actually improving something. So even though it's not perfect, it's getting better, and that feels really energizing to me. Yeah. So far, I'm only at the beginning, but I I would tend to agree. It's – I guess it's just this feeling of pride too, like – this is the thing I created and yeah, it might be really shitty, but we're getting somewhere. Yeah. So, and it takes up that much. It's that heavy. Like it takes up, it's girthy. Yes. Like every time I see it in the morning, I'm like, look at you. (laughs) (laughs) Like It just makes me really, really proud of myself. And actually one of the reasons that I first kind of pushed myself to start writing is I followed this random YouTuber and she did a video where she was like picking up her first draft and she was like, I don't know if anyone would read this. And she was so happy. And I was like, that must be the most amazing feeling just to be like, here is everything I worked on for so long. And so it was kind of like a full circle moment in the Staples parking lot. Um, but it was, it, it's been good. It's a complicated feeling. It's like, what, look what I did. What have I done? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's suddenly you understand so much about why people are like, well, I first started working on this book about 12 years ago. Like, it's just suddenly starts yeah. to make a lot of sense. Yeah. But yeah, what what is the the low for you? We both have physical ailment lows. Um, mine is that allergy season is in full swing, and I'm experiencing a new to me allergy symptom this year. So usually I get the stuffy nose and whatever, but this year my eyes are so watery from pollen, and I'm just constantly leaking. Just like kind of, it, it's itchy eyes, but it's also like, oh, I'm kind of crying right now. Oh no, that sounds miserable. It's not comfortable. I just have to be better at taking Claritin and doing it every 24 hours and as opposed to taking it once every 72 hours and then for 48 <laughs> of those hours being like, what's going on? Yeah. I feel like it's been a weird spring too. It's like cold, sort of warm for yeah. one day, cold. And I feel like this is not scientific, but I feel like it makes it worse. Oh, interesting. I don't know, because I feel like your body can't adjust. Interesting. Who knows? What's yours? So my low is really my own fault, but I should probably get my wisdom teeth out. It's always been like, you probably should, but there's also room for them. And then I had a dentist tell me I didn't need to. I don't know. I have a general fear about anesthesia and... I mean, who doesn't fear getting their teeth pulled out of their head? Let's be honest. So (laughs) I've been avoiding it and my wisdom teeth are coming in and it is really painful. Um, And 
yeah, I, I have an appointment scheduled for June, but I'm almost like by that point, maybe I'll be through the pain and then I will just put it off again and we'll start this whole cycle, cycle over again. But, um, yeah, not, so not a major low, just a little bit annoying. I'm sorry. That sucks. I, I'm glad that I, I had mine out when I was a teenager and I didn't get a choice, but I can imagine that if I hadn't, I would be hemming and hawing the same way. Yeah. It's um once you've avoided it for so long, you kind of just put it in your head that you can just keep avoiding it forever. So we'll see. Oh man. <laughs> Updates to come. Well, let's take a quick ad break. So some of you may have seen on Instagram that I'm doing a personal challenge to not order takeout delivery for the rest of the year. So far, it's going well, but I'm always on the hunt for solutions that make cooking fun, easy, and enjoyable. And that's why I'm so glad that HelloFresh is a sponsor. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. And I don't know if you can tell from our last few episodes, but I've been a little overwhelmed recently with work. So HelloFresh is a perfect fallback option for me. And I love how much variety there is. I can pick from 50 different weekly options and skip weeks whenever I need to or change my delivery date all in the app. And their chefs really know how to diversify your dinner menu with seasonal spring recipes like sweet heat shrimp tempura bowls, garden spinach ricotta ravioli, and one pot creamy lemon dill chicken soup. Because even though I'm short on time, I don't want to settle for something that's just bland and blah. That shrimp tempura bowl sounds amazing. But the other good thing is that every recipe comes with step-by-step photo instructions so the process is never stressful. I've even picked up a few new cooking techniques from them. Last week, I did the warm buttered shrimp rolls, which is something I never think to make at home. And it was so delicious. And it was really nice to have the leftovers for lunch the next day. And I also did the one pan pork fajita lettuce wraps, which were so simple and didn't leave me with a sink full of dishes, which I really appreciate. And I love that I can go indulgent or healthy, depending on my mood and my cravings. Go to HelloFresh.com slash BOP16 and use code BOP16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash BOP16 and use code BOP16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. We are so excited to have with us today Felicia Jones, who is the Senior Director of Global People Development at PagerDuty. Felicia received her undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley, started her career at Deloitte Consulting in the human capital practice, and obtained her master's in industrial psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She's worked in technology, leading talent and people teams for 15 years. Welcome, Felicia. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I was saying this to you yesterday, but this feels so full circle because you and I used to be in a book club in San Francisco like 10 years ago. It's, and it's thinking about I'm still reading. I think we should all be reading. And I want to say thank you for having me, but also how small the world is and how beautiful the world is with these kind of different collisions. I'm so jealous that the book club still exists. I'm just no longer a part of it because I don't live locally in San Francisco. What's this month's pick? Do you know? Wahala. It's a, a Nigerian British mixed race friend group who goes through a lot of drama. So can't we talk about that? This. Oh, okay. <laughs> it is. It's very serendipitous. I just finished it. I'm excited to hear what you think. 
it, according to the reviews, is very polarizing, but I liked it a lot. It was from a standpoint of understanding that experience from that standpoint, it was, I was almost like a fish looking into a fishbowl I wasn't aware of. And I'm just really thankful that my friend group is not like that. (laughs) (laughs) I won't say any spoilers, but like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, before we get into the listener submitted questions, though, Felicia, can you give us an overview of your career and credentials? I just want people to know who they're hearing from here. Yeah. Thanks, Becca. So hello, everyone. How did I actually get here? Uh, It was my start at Deloitte Consulting, where I saw firsthand how they invested in their people. And it was almost so best practice. I wonder, like, can you build that somewhere else? The amount of investment that they make in their people is unparalleled. And so when I left consulting, I started out as a senior manager of talent development, building a new function for the first time. And I learned so much about just the manager's role in the overall employee's experience. And so I probably like you all have had good, bad managers and been in toxic and a beautiful work environments. And now my current role at PageDuty, I really am that person who's trying to build leaders for the modern world. That being those who are not managing teams and those who are managing teams, like what that looks like to get to that modern state where people feel like they belong in their role at the company and the team that they're on. And that's a really hard thing to do. But my team is the one who's concerned and is challenged to build that experience for our employees at PGD. Something I you mentioned um, in our prep call that I really liked is that you focus on the human aspect of HR, which kind of struck me because I had only ever thought of HR from a purely like business first perspective, not really like human being first. Is that part of what drew you to HR, like just working with human beings and everything that entails? You know, no, <laughs> um, originally, because if you think about HR, sometimes has that like negative connotation of compliance, and they only do a comp, and you got to pay people. But I will say HR has gone through evolution as well. It's like originally it was like personnel department, and it was like how people were fitting into an organization. And then it became human resources because it's like, okay, there's people who are parents, who are mothers and fathers, who are showing up to work and making sure they're safe. And then it became this whole idea of like, well, it's people. It's a people organization. There's chief people officers and there's people operations. I think Google started that around data-driven. But if we think about post-2020 and social justice, it is the human who is bringing their life, their identities, their demographics to the spaces that they work in. And I think we're going back to the idea of like, there's humans at work. Um, so I think what why I stay in HR is probably the better question for me to answer is because I have a, I think I'm very fascinated with the psychology of how humans interact in spaces and organizations and where you can be efficient and where you can be ineffective and the whole idea of motivation uh, that plays a role in that. And so what, what keeps me in here is I do, do think it takes a, a certain team aside from the traditional recruiting department and operations department um, to actually give that human element to the employee experience. And so um, if my team can make it less compliance focused and more like, actually, how does this job amplify you and your life or your career? Like I'm hoping my team does that as we think about our onboarding experiences or what we teach, what we coach people on. That's what I just have fascination for like people having career making moments. And like we spend so much time at work 
we have to find ways in which we're having some sort of joy and we feel supported um, in those different moments. Um, so that's why I think it's stay in HR. It's like, this is like where my passion lives. So we're very excited to get your point of view on a little bit of everything today. We have a grab bag of questions that were submitted by our listeners. So the first category I want to cover is getting hired. We had a ton of questions about job hunting. And I was really surprised that one of the things that came up the most was cover letters. Everyone was curious about cover letters. Do you still need one? Do people actually read them? And if they do, how do I write a good one? So I'm actually currently hiring right now. And the last couple of roles I've hired for, I've, I've never read someone's cover letter. So my initial instinct is as like a hiring manager, just for those out there, is that I'm looking at, you know, what's your experience? How to you convey that in your LinkedIn profile? Um, that is my go-to first. And then obviously everyone must submit an actual resume because then some of the more detail is there. And so I, as a hiring manager, prioritize that LinkedIn profile and resume first. Now, I do go back to when was the last time I wrote a cover letter? And it's when I was applying for full-time jobs out of college. And when you are trying to transition or make a move that is new from where you are, I do think a cover letter can't give you an opportunity to articulate to the hiring manager where you're currently at. And so while I'm not saying, do you still need one? It depends is uh, probably the common answer. It's like, where are you in your career journey? Because sometimes when you're looking to move up or move across in your current domain, your resume should speak for itself. If you're trying to hop and skip or move into a place where you haven't been before, but you have transferable skills that you think will contribute to that, I think that story, if it's not articulated in your LinkedIn profile or something you've posted about, then I do think a color can actually uh, be the place for you to share that story with the hiring manager. That's so interesting what you said about right out of college, because that's where my uh, that's where I think cover letters were stressed so much. And it makes sense now because nobody had any experience. So you were trying to differentiate in a field of people who all kind of had no qualifications. <laughs> Another question we got a lot was about resume gaps. So what would you say to someone who is really unhappy in their current job, but they're kind of afraid to just quit with nothing lined up because of that resume gap and how it will look? What's your perspective there? Yeah. So it depends on the gap length, right? I've hired people who've had gaps in their resume. There's life happens. Now I'm a manager who values the fact that life happens, right? And so when you are questioned about that gap, you should think about how you feel having that conversation because you will have to one day explain to someone in real terms why that gap happened. And if, if that manager is hiring a human being who is trying to do make good decisions in their life, like we have to be understanding, right? And that's going to be a good indication of that hiring manager that one day could be your boss. So I think when you are thinking about leaving a job, like it's up to you to determine what's your intention of leaving because that same intention is what you have to explain when someone questions you in a job. Now, if the, if um, the gaps are like a year, like people are taking a gap year. It's a common thing. What are you doing in that gap year? And so I think hopefully if you're taking a gap year or there's gaps, what did you do? Now, people are traveling the world. I mean, see, getting a global perspective is so important nowadays. Learning different language, going back to school, you know, taking care of a family member, 
like taking a mental pause and break. Like, I don't know if anyone's going to knock you for doing things that make you a better person or help you get healthier, right? Or get you connected back to who you are. When there is such a long gap and there's nothing you can say you did, that is where I would be a little concerned on, because this was the question like, so you just took time off for five years, you know? So, but if you can say like, no, actually here's what I did, then okay. Like how does that contribute to why you want to apply for this role? Right. So I, I think um, we have to uh, rethink when we think about a gap, like what, how are you making the most of that gap to you personally? And how can it actually help you in your next job? Because I think it's okay to have those moments of pause in our lives that are giving permission that maybe that gap is necessary um, to, you know, because we're trying to, you know, be better on the other end of that um, pause or gap year. So it's about the storytelling more than the, it's not bad to have a gap. It's just how do you, how do you tell that story? Right. You know, like what, what were you doing? And now I actually know their values, right? And so I take it, I don't like not look at a resume when that happens. I'm like, why? Well, I might want to dig there and see what, what's going on. So I'm just curious. So yeah, and being vulnerable to share that as well. I'm very excited to get into this next area because this is your area of expertise. We want to talk about being a boss or dealing with one. And this first question I relate to so much. Somebody wanted to know, how can I learn to manage an employee if my company doesn't have any training programs? Do you have any books or resource recommendations? And just to add to this, this was the situation I was in. I came up in smaller startups. Nobody ever sat me down and gave me a chat about how to manage somebody or, you know, better yet, a formal training. It was just like, and here's a person. <laughs> yes. Don't screw it up. I had the same experience. Very intimidating. Yeah. So this is a common question. And so um, in the learning space, just in terms of like, how do you gain experience? I go to what I call it the ease, like the four E's, right? So first is like education first eat, right? So there probably is like a best practice of thought leader out there that you can learn from, right? So there's, again, LinkedIn Learning, there's Coursera, there's all these different um, programs that are going to teach you the fundamentals of the frameworks of giving feedback or hiring. Um, and usually there's process stuff that hopefully startups offer or companies offer, but how do you show up as a leader? You can get that from reading a book, taking a course, okay? Just, but at a very general standpoint, it's like, you need to be able to give feedback. You must be able to give hard feedback and manage performance. Like there are a lot of books and trains out there. So education is the first piece. Now, what I would say about what information do you retain when you actually go to a class is only 10%. So when you think about that, you can't put all your time on that course and think you can manage tomorrow. The second um, area is that we, where you can retain at least 20% of those learning is through coaching and mentorship. So this is my second E, is actually thinking about exposure. When you think about what makes a good manager or what makes a good boss is like looking around your network or on like, you know, just like asking your friends, like, is your boss great? You know, what, what attributes does that boss demonstrate or what makes that why would you want to follow that boss? Or, you know, there's tons of webinars like around this, but if you think about what makes a good leader, maybe you can interview, maybe you can like kind of do an information interview with someone that you admire. It's like, what were their leadership strategies or what did, what draws them to leadership? You can actually get 
a little more perspective on why people lead versus just doing a job because you want to make the money, right? There's a huge responsibility that comes with leadership. And I think you can expose yourself to good leaders and bad leaders starts to create your own playbook. So part of your learning should be exposing yourself to different leaders, even your own own manager to see like, why do they lead? Because it does shape your perspective. Now, the other 70% of what we retain is actually on the job experience. That's where you do the best learning. So what I will say, the last two E's are environment and also um, experience. And so if you can possibly be a buddy, be a mentor, be a lead, be a project leader, that actually throws you right in to, oh, I have to give my peer feedback. Or I have to communicate a vision to a team who's on this project. Or someone's asking me for feedback that I need to deliver them. Those are all going to test, do you like doing those things? Do you feel uncomfortable doing those things? Do you get prideful? Like, I love that someone asked me to do this. Because then you will want, if you do all those four things in your learning journey, you can then take advantage of those process trainings at work and ask better questions to say like, hey, so if I can share my own example is that I have had bad, good managers. And one of my, a CFO, a chief financial officer I reported to my last job asked me all these questions and I actually hated it all the time. But in that moment, I realized that this person was asking me questions to like, see how I was thinking about things. And I asked him one day, it's like, why do you do that? And he's like, as a leader, I want to understand how you're thinking. And I want to make sure that I support you to bring that point of view to life. And I was just like, that's why I want to lead. And so I would say in those moments where you have a breakthrough moment in your career by a manager, you should pause and ask them. It's like, what, what, what brings you joy in this role? Because that teaches you like where, why you would lead other people. So the best leaders out there who are learning how to be great bosses, learn from their experience. They fail fast. They learn fast and they always allow themselves to grow. And they, want, they don't want to be the smartest person in the room. So you will never know it all. But if you allow yourself to always learn from your mistakes or learn from your team, you will have people follow you. I promise. Showing up as knowing everything and telling people what to do all the time, that's not going to be a great leader. So those are my, my thoughts. Let's take an ad break. Today's episode is brought to you by Pros. By now, you've probably heard me rave about Pros, the world's most personalized hair care. But in case you haven't, I want to tell you about the incredible results I've been seeing with my customized Pros products. And I actually just got a fresh bottle of my customized shampoo and conditioner this week. So I've been using Pros for almost two years now. And in that time, I've seen a really massive and candidly somewhat unexpected improvement in my hair. So when I originally signed up, I told them I wanted less frizz and to go longer between washes. And it's done that. But my hair is also healthier. It's shinier. It's fuller. And take this from someone who has pretty lackluster hair to begin with. My hair is pretty fine and it's on the thinner side. The pros has made a really big difference. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, which is how I got started. It takes five minutes and they ask you about everything from your hair type and styling routine to some less expected questions about your diet, exercise routine, and zip code so they can take into account environmental factors. 
By analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros determines a unique blend of ingredients to treat your exact concerns. Pros also has a really cool review and refine feature, so every time I buy a new bottle, I get to tell them how they did and they make tweaks to improve the next bottle. So it literally gets better the longer you use it. And as a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty, and they're also cruelty free. And they're risk free. If you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair care regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash BOP. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash B-O-P for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. In terms of maybe not so great leaders, we had a very specific question and I'll just read it how they wrote it. But uh, so it says, I work at a small company, 20 people as the sole marketing person. It's a new position at the company and I'm new to the role and industry. I have too many supervisors and a lot of decision paths are unclear. They have all learned to live with the chaos because they are the chaos, but I am not so keen on that option. Another difficult element is that one supervisor simply does not reply to emails. I have a six-month review coming up, and I'm not sure how to give feedback about this to them without coming across as if I'm whining or can't handle the job. How do you suggest I approach it? (sighs) There's so much in there. A couple of things is... I'm going to go to my norms and my expectation settings. So a lot of times when people find themselves in a situation, it's like everyone's making up their own rules, right? And when you're working cross-functionally, like marketing obviously, obviously does most of the time, is that when no one's taking the lead and saying, let's take a step back, how are we going to work together, right? What, how are we going to communicate? And I, I call these like rules of engagement or clean agreements, or norms, where you state the expectations around when we communicate, how we communicate, so that people know how to make decisions, right? People know we don't use email, we use Slack, right? Or we use text. I, I believe in naming things. And as, a, as workers, we're actually really bad at that. Like we use a lot of fluffy words, but if we can just name When it comes to email, we expect to receive a response within 24 hours, especially for high urgent things. How do we define urgency? We define urgency these ways, right? Let's not assume everyone has the same definition for norms or for urgency or decisions. What makes a decision? There, we have to make sure that teams, if you're the boss or leader in a situation, if you're not clarifying expectations, then it's actually really hard to get feedback. It's really hard to approach people. And so my team knows that my role, my kind of, I hate surprise. I hate surprises. I want to know that we have it together and we're talking about the thing. So one of our rules is that we name the things and we don't wait for PJ to wonder if, if I know something. Just ask him the question, right? That's actually in stated, written down in our meeting agenda every week we go over it. We flex that muscle. So I would say if the decision plans are unclear, schedule a meeting to make them clear, right? These decisions are, we have to make every day. Here's how we're going to make them. Here's the follow-up. And I always call it the clean agreements are the what, the who, and the when. So that specifies that we have a clean agreement for the decision. 
And people can always negotiate when that those three areas are very clear. And then when it comes to those norms and having reviews come up, if those are named or written down and everyone agrees, like I believe in co-creating those norms, you can better hold people accountable for those norms. So when it comes to feedback, you can actually, hey, on the norms that we set, you know, two months ago or, you know, last month, we talked about the importance of responsiveness to email. There's a framework called SBI. So in case you're out leader, you're like, how do I deliver feedback? It's like, what's the situation? You know, for that work deliverable, we agreed that you would have it done by Friday in the day. The behavior was that it didn't get done by the deadline we stated in that meeting, and it wasn't done until two weeks later. The impact was, I, is that um, the team was constantly chasing you and respond, you know, getting, trying to get a response from you, and you never responded. So how should we move forward? Like, you can make feedback less of a you and blaming and more on let's change the behavior because you can't change people. You change behaviors, how we actually improve that. So do we need to rethink that norm if we can't turn things around by the clean agreement we set? So that's how I would think about, like, if you don't give feedback, people would do the same thing over and over again. Like that's the beauty of feedback. It's a workout and it's a gift. Um, so I would say um, if this person's a leader out there, only you as leader can stop the whining. Only you can be the leader who clarifies decisions. The leader is responsible for clarifying and reminding how people show up and get work done together. And in terms of if you're trying to communicate to a higher up, like I basically what you're saying is you don't have to say, hey, I am really unhappy with this. You can say, can you clarify what the expectation is here? Because it's very unclear to me. And then if you don't like that expectation, (laughs) then it's up to you to assess if the company matches your values. Yeah. Curiosity is, it's a good thing, right? So seek to understand. So if you are communicating upward, you have an information gap that you're trying to close, right? So you can get clarity. So your intention is to seek clarity, right? And that should be your intention. And if they're like, you're not, if you don't like your response, like your intention is still to get clarity. Well, then how do you recommend I work in the situation? What are, what are two things I can do to navigate these different challenges, right? The leader, if they can't support you on removing that roadblock or challenge, that's when I would question like, wait, am I going to be successful here? But I, I do think as, you know, people reporting to people, that leader needs to create space for that person to ask questions, share what they need to do to get work done. If they're not getting that, then I think it's like, maybe this is not the the right environment for you to thrive, right? But you, I would say like, it should be that. I, 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 you know, it should be that. Like you, I, leaders want employees asking questions to uncover what's not working. Because a lot of times they don't know. So if you see something, you should say something because that leader may not know decisions are unclear or people are whining. They may have no idea, especially in this remote and hybrid environment that we're living in. Definitely. Definitely. Super helpful. So question for you from another HR person. This person said, I've been in my HR role since 2013, though I got promoted to senior in 2015. The role didn't change much, however. My boss has been telling me that I'm her successor for years, but she just let me know last month that she plans to retire in two years. I feel stagnant and I don't want my career to keep languishing while I wait for her job to open up. How do I ask for a promotion and let her know that I don't just want to wait another two years for her to retire before moving up myself? 
couple things and hopefully, you know, answer the question here is if writing things down is really important. So when you are the successor to your boss, you still want to experience growth because that's what keeps people engaged in their work. So as we get promoted, we never talk about what is net new, right? And so yes, promotions are always important and they also have curved kind of moments for you. But if you feel like you're doing the same thing, then what was the, what was the promotion for? Just more money, right? So one thing, when the, and if you're in a situation where you're the successor to your manager, each year there should be an opportunity for you to discuss, what am I doing net new differently? So you feel like your role's engaged, right? And so that's one thing I would say in a situation is talk about what's one thing you can do that may be different or add to your scope that gives that person more preview to your boss's jobs or daily decisions that they haven't been previewed to before. That back to that exposure and environment that that person can get. Number two on this is I would not tie your career growth to a person. So you could be missing so many opportunities because you're waiting for someone else to make a move. And that thing is holding you back. And that's languishing. That is real. So I always say don't tether your success to your manager ever because you will not see the other doors that could be open for you. You want to learn as much from your manager. You want to ask for things from your manager, but you could actually be doing your manager's job somewhere else tomorrow, right? If you allow yourself to learn, but not be super connected, like a chain link to your manager. So start to think about removing your like need to follow your leader to the end of the cliff. Think about what you can learn, how they can apply you to get to your next spot, whether it be at the company or elsewhere. And number two is like, what do you want to do in terms of asking for the promotion? So if there's not a clear career path or a career journey within the team, and you're waiting for your manager to retire, you can't maybe wait. You don't want to wait, right? So I would say articulate what experiences do you want to like have? Is it because you want your boss's job or is it like, I, I want to have that scope. I want to manage that team. I want to own that project because then you can make sure that where that promotion is, you're actually not just getting a title, but you're actually getting the work that sets you up for that next role. So a lot of times when you act for promotion, how I like to break it down is what is the business outcome that's happening in the business right now? Then you look at what are the processes that help solve or manage that business outcome or a challenge? What is that role that owns those processes that is responsible for solving that business outcome? And then why are you qualified to be in that role, to own that process, to solve or manage that business outcome? Always start with the end in mind and why you're qualified because then the promotion makes sense versus just saying you want a promotion. Like, why do you want to be promoted? It's always like, what, what's your why? That's what we articulate, making sure that you're getting promotions and your work is actually going to be there on the other side of that promotion as well. Felicia, I feel like I'm learning so much. I feel like my instinct is always just quit, you know, and you're, you're like really teaching us how to manage through some of these situations and to figure out if that's the right, the right thing to do or the rash thing to do. Well, actually, just a comment on that is I always say the grass is not greener. It's just grass people, right? So whether you could have, I mean, 
there's just grass and you didn't know who's watering it. So you can quit for sure. Like sometimes quitting makes sense. Let me, let me be honest. Quitting makes sense, but you may have the same challenge at your next place. So if you allow yourself to have these conversations, get the feelings and emotions that go with it, you then know how to learn from those when you find yourself in that next situation at the next place. But avoiding the conversation and not leaning into it, you don't learn how to move through it when you're there the next time. Because let me tell you, it will happen again. Like it will come up in a new environment. So I'm like, ask the question. See how they respond because then you're like, oh, I actually know how to ask, ask that question. Next time you're, oh, I got a different response and now I'm having a two-way dialogue, right? So I always say like, I'm not trying to break the rules when it comes to um, HR, but you know, when you're an employee, you're, you just want a job to, that, to support your passion. That's all we want, right? Why is that hard? So if I'm asking a question to help me do my job better, why am I penalized? And, you know, so I'm, I'm like trying to like figure out like giving permission for people to, yes, you want to have that, have that conversation, like have that manager have that conversation with you so you can actually unpack that, you know? So I I want to, I want to say that find ways to stay, but also find ways that what to, to articulate why you need to leave as well. Right. Yeah. I wish I had heard all of this when I worked at a company and didn't work for myself because some of this is just blowing my mind. I'm like, yeah, actually, if I had just figured out a way to better communicate, not only would I have improved as an employee and probably someone with any type of career, but I might have just solved the problem right there. But moving on to another question that someone asked, someone wrote, how can I politely refuse the burden of service slash diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, especially as a woman of color? Ooh, this is a, me, myself being a woman of color, I understand. I understand. So I see and I hear you, whoever wrote that question in. So here's what I would say. You just do, right? So anyone who asks a question or asks for volunteers, they should already expect someone to say yes, to be say no, Maybe, right? One thing I want to say is as women, as people of color, there is a lot of burden for us to like show up and take carry the weight on our shoulders. But we have the privilege to pick and choose when we do that, right? So one thing, part of the culture where this person works, they may want people to participate, but there's different levels of participation. Do I just show up and attend and listen? Do I show up, attend and speak? Do I plan the event. And so when I think about refusing, just be, just be kind of conscious of like, well, if you have a organization that's all about environmental social governance of the ESG or IDE, they may want as a cultural value people to participate, right? So participating looks different in different ways. And so I always say is like, before you refuse, like, well, what are the different varying levels of work you want me to do? Is I just going to show up, you want me to attend and Wilson? Okay attend. Listen, right? If they wish you to plan things, well, that's not on your career goals. That's not, you don't mean to have time for that. And you can simply like, you know, now's not a good time or, you know, that's not something I'm actually passionate about or, you know, I'm working on this. Like, I don't think you have to kind of clarify your no, but I would just kind of make sure you know what you're saying no to or what you're refusing. Because to build culture around diversity, equity, inclusion, it's about building a common language, common understanding of what that means and how we show up all together 
to do those things and the actions as a collective organization. So you can't really refuse those things when the organization is trying to build that place of belonging. But the work associated with that, that is something that you have the right to refuse because you don't want to play. You have no passion for that, right? And so I just, I, I just want to kind of clarify the politeness is can be in the form of um, if the ask is not clarified in the what and the how, then I think you can ask more questions and just say like, now's not a good time. Like you can simply say, no, I'm not interested. That, you know, no, I'm not interested to do that right now, right? Though, because you really just want people who are passionate about IDE to do the IDE efforts, right? And there's no need that you should not feel responsible to take that on because your identity puts you in an underrepresented population group. That is no. <laughs> but yeah, so that's why I will say there. And I, I'm, I'm very passionate about that because I'm, I'm seeing the burden it's placing on women and women of color. Um, and it's not okay. So I just wanted to name that. On the other end of the spectrum, a lighter question. Are feedback surveys really as anonymous as they say? Yes. So, you know, some of their, you're familiar with like, you know, engagement surveys, wellness surveys, and, you know, inclusion surveys. So based on the platform that they use, a lot of times in terms of the strategy or configuration of that survey, companies can choose to turn off the self-identification, like who responded. And then there's an, an, an anonymous, right? So here's what I would say is like, based on like technology, nothing's ever anonymous. Okay, if that makes make sense. Like they can always track it back to a person, okay? Now, it's really important to focus less on an, like anonymous, but how are results aggregated, right? So I don't wanna have to answer a survey, be pulled out of that survey data and be treated differently because I had some harsh feedback. No, you ask me for my feedback, don't single me out, right? However, with small teams, usually if you're doing like, like sometimes like for PageDuty, we don't give any results to a manager who has less than five people on their team because it's not really anonymous, right? You kind of know. So you want to know like, are those different like thresholds embedded in the survey strategy? You also want to know like how are survey results being used to inform what? You know, so kind of focus on the strategy of that data, because we do think about how can a leader who oversees a region or a department, how they know, like, is difference between the employees may say in like London versus Toronto, we do want to split it out so that leader knows like there is a difference in terms of how employees are perceiving the employee experience. But usually they're anonymous in that they can't really, your name is not showing up to the comment or response you gave. Well, now I'm just thinking based on some of your earlier feedback, instead of venting on the survey, maybe we should be having more proactive conversations about processes as opposed to just saying all of our our toxic feelings on the survey. So you're 100%. And so my team, you can probably tell I take my job as a leader very seriously. And I have a small team. So I'm the manager who does not get survey results. I'm so mad about it. Um, but I mentioned that I hate surprises. So I tell my team, if you are having an issue and you are waiting for the survey to come out once a year to vent and voice your issue, I am the only one who can do something about it. And I don't want to find out about it through my boss who gets the survey results that I don't know you said it. So I, would, I tell them, I highly encourage you to lean in 
be vulnerable and just ask me the question because I'm the number one person who's concerned about making sure that challenge is removed within less than 24 hours. And so when I, when they say that, they're like, yeah, why am I waiting for the server to like, so yeah, give feedback on the organization, but me and your job, me and your role, me and your career growth, I need to know that as soon as you have that feeling. So I have better conversations with my team and they tell me so many things, which I super happy that they do. Um, so, cause I just ask them, I, ch- I check in with them, their engagement through like weather forecast, like, is it cloudy? Is it rainy? Is chance of, you know, hail? Like what's happening so that I can help support them in that moment? Because I'm not going to, I don't want to find out about them not liking their comp or them not liking their experience or their role in the engagement survey. Because that's just like a horrible way to find out about something. But I get it. I have a small team. I could do that. Um, but I tr- I, continuous conversations and improving your one-on-ones is what a manager should be focused on because you're not worried about, <gasps> what does that engagement score say? You know? It never would have even occurred to me to ask how a survey was like being used <laughs> but you know it's just that thing you fill out and you're like okay well here's where my feelings about but that is wow again blowing my mind but another section that we got a ton of questions on was about the subject of quitting as someone who quit my job to go freelance and like my manager I've never been more terrified or unsure about what was expected or polite But for the first question that a lot of people asked, it was, how long should you stay at a single job? Is there a one-year rule still in in existence? I would say 90 days is when someone knows and whether they're going to stay or leave at a company. And usually it's 90 days because like, you can't really say two weeks because I'm like, what are you going to really know, right? But you should, within 90 days, you should know your managers and your team. You should know if you believe in the product of the company. And you should know if you're actually given ownership, autonomy, value in your role. In 90 days, if you can get that, you could be looking for another job. So I say that to say there's that 90 day mark. And then I think about there is some level of expectations you want on by that one year mark. I want a raise. I want good feedback. I want probably a high performance rating. I want more responsibility or I want me to leave me alone and just do my job, right? If you believe you can't get that in by year one, based on your observations by day 90 or month six, I would say is whatever you choose to do, um, and you do that on a reoccurring basis, the optics of that looks like, do you know what you want to do? Do you know how to actually ask better questions at interview to know the expectations of the role? Do, if you're jumping around so frequently, like, are you allowing yourself to really learn and fell fast and bring those learnings to the next job? That is the brand that signals to you if you're jumping around so many times in that short amount of time frame. So you could probably do it once, quitting within two years or one year, six weeks. You can do it once. If you leave within only two weeks, don't put that job on your resume, frankly honest, right? What, what's the point? Um, but just really think you have to think about there's a story in the optics of doing it over and over again. And someone, and, and as a high manager, I would say like, I probably wouldn't interview that person to be frankly honest. Um, but if they had the experience, I'd say, can you, you know, I see that you actually have mood every single year. Can you kind of walk me through what prompted those decisions for you to leave and move on to the next job? And you have to be ready to give a real honest answer with that. Maybe there was org changes, there were layoffs, the role changed, 
a new manager came in, they redesigned the entire team. Sometimes those are massive changes that never came out in the interview process when you originally applied and you never expected that to happen. Okay. You know, like that is, those things happen in those types of environments. Got it. Noted. There was a layoff. There was an org change when M&A happened. Like you went public. Those are all the things that can happen that prompts those. But if you're just like, I don't like that person. Then it's like, can you not work with difficult people? Can you not work in like confusing situations? Like those things are everywhere, right? So I would just be very conscious of having it being a pattern. Hmm. Yeah. Let's take an ad break. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. No matter what industry you work in, you've likely heard the term burnout before. Now, you probably associate that with too many video meetings, too many emails, or too many projects, but burnout can honestly apply to any aspect of your life. That's where therapy can come in. I can't tell you how many times I've had sessions with my therapist where I discuss feeling overwhelmed by social dynamics, family situations, or creative endeavors, all things that have nothing at all to do with work. It's also easy to experience burnout without even realizing it. Symptoms can include things like lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and so much more. To me, burnout can often feel like wanting to do nothing else but cocoon myself in a blanket, shut off my phone, and sit in total silence for a solid two days. If it gets really bad, it can also mean that I completely retreat from the things I love, like reading, writing, and spending time with friends and family. Needless to say, this isn't ideal, but having access to a trusted therapist gives me the tools and confidence to work through burnout and move past it. This is why I love how easy BetterHelp makes it to find customized therapy in the form of video, phone, and even live chat sessions with a therapist. Don't want to be on camera? No problem. It's so much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Knowing you can access qualified support quickly can be such a game changer when it comes to fighting burnout. The good news is that Bad on Paper listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash badonpaper. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash badonpaper. Last question for us to end on. I'm very curious to hear your answer because I have a lot of feelings. How do I quit when I have a personal attachment or feel obligation to my boss. I know. And it goes back to that last um, situation we talked about on someone like waiting for the manager to retire. So here's the thing. When you think about that personal attachment to your manager, why do you have that personal attachment? Is it because they're a solid human being and they're like, I learned so much from them personally, professionally. Because when you think about it, when you leave a manager, they should, and a good one, they should still be someone in your like sponsorship, in your mentorship camp. One of my favorite managers to this day, I don't work with her anymore. I'm still connected with her. We still talk and I wish I could work with her again, but we just amplify each other's professional journeys, right? And so is if you feel like you're not going to be successful because that manager is not going to be by your side, then think about like, how, what are you leaning on that manager for? Because if that person's like covering your behind each time, they're telling you your job, 
that's going to be very difficult because one day that manager is not going to be there. So letting go of like getting more responsibility, getting asking that manager for more tough feedback can help you see them as like a mentor, a manager, and a coach. But if you're just sticking with them because you're like, I don't want to go anywhere else in the world without you. I'm not sure that's unhealthy. It's just like, if you want career growth, you have to learn to work with different levels of leaders. Every leader I've reported to has been so different. And I can't say I want to like follow them off into, you know, the rainbows. But I think about like, what can I learn from this person? How can they amplify my career? And do I feel like this person's hindering my career growth? Because other than that, I'm like, if I move on from my current job, can this person be someone that I can like lean on for advice, coaching, et cetera? And sometimes there's some bosses who aren't in that camp, but try to see your boss in many different ways versus the only person I can work with for the rest of my life because there's no one else with this person. I promise you they're out there, but maybe it makes sense for you to have a bad manager. So you know then what you really want in your next manager, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a, I was with the same person all the time, but I have learned so much from that manager and every manager after, which is why I lead the way that I do, right? That diversity of management um, will help that person and anyone else um, if they allow themselves to work with me, different people. I also just want to add here, I wonder if this person is asking, will they be angry at me? Oh, will they be angry? In which case, it's like, if they are angry at you, maybe they're not as good a boss as you thought they were. They should be happy for your career advancement. Right. Okay. Just a couple of things. Never, don't tell yourself that story, right? Don't tell, you cannot, you don't know how people are going to feel, right? I believe in telling all the five emotions, right? They're going to feel something. They're going to probably feel anger, sadness, joy, disgust, and nervousness, right? They're going to like inside out. They're going to experience all those at once, right? And you got to allow them to feel those things. Don't tell yourself a story that they're only going to feel anger at you. They're going to probably feel every emotion, right? But if they're a good manager, it's like, how can I help you? How can I help support you in your next role? Like, do I need to be a reference for you? I always say like, you know, I, I say like, I hate surprises, but I tell my team, it's like, I know that we're not going to work together forever, but I'm always telling them, it's like, think about how I can help you get that next spot, whether within pager duty or outside of pager duty. And I'm not going to be offended if you choose to realize your next goal somewhere else, but think about how I can help you get there. Right. And so that's like articulating your career goals, articulating what you want to experience, what you want to get after. Cause then that manager, when you have that conversation, it's not just anger. It's like, oh, you took my advice, you know, or, you know, that came up six months ago. So I'm not surprised by that. You know, I'm kind of sad that I, we're not going to have to work together, but I'm happy that you're actually getting after your goals. You know, like that's a better conversation. So don't, don't tell yourself a story that they're going to be anger, angry at you. Uh, they're going to feel a lot of different emotions when it happens. Yeah, definitely. I also think people confuse having a manager that is nice with a manager that is helping them be (laughs) as successful as possible in their career. And I think people fear the bad, mean boss so much that they perhaps don't quit or challenge themselves because, you know, their manager's nice and their friend, which is, of course, great. So to sum everything up, what is one key takeaway you would want people to reflect on and their careers and their lives and their business journeys, everything after listening to this episode with you? 
Yeah. So I didn't mention a lot of books that I've read, but I'll share one and feel free to people to reach out to me on LinkedIn for more book recommendations. But Simon Sinek wrote a book, Start With Why. And he also wrote a book called The Infinite Game. And in those books, he talks really great about knowing your why, starting with your why. And everything we talked about from hiring to quitting to working with the boss, your intention on your why is so important because that influences the what you do and how you do it. Um, when those are all really well connected, you can tell a better story. You can tell that story when you have a gap year, or you can tell the story when you've had multiple jumps in your um, career, or you will know that why when you're trying to tell someone's like, hey, we're having some decision-making issues on this team. I want to help improve them because your why is you want to get to a better outcome. So the start with why is just a great book to really think about your intentions. And the infinite game is a great book to give you why do we do what we do? He talks a lot about we're playing the long game. So while you can have multiple stops in your career, what is your ultimate long game? And hopefully you will find that your long game should be connected to a cause that you care about. So my cause is I want to build leaders for the modern world. So each decision I make in this long game that I'm playing in is getting me close to that cause. But I know I'm going to be never done because the world's changing. So I don't, I don't want to win. I just want to move the cause further, closer to the outcome. Um, and so I think this is really good framing to keep in mind. So when we question, the person's going to be angry with me. It's like, well, what's your why? If they're angry, like your why is from a good place. It's not from a place of anger. I'm trying to seek to understand. And so I just, I, I pull a lot from those two books because it just really anchors you in that human side of you is that your why is the light post that guides your values, what you do, your passion. And I wish people could realize that is the character you're building. It's not the titles you're chasing. It's your why that builds that character. And that's what we want to hire you, follow you, want to hire you. So. Felicia, you have been such an amazing guest and a font of wisdom. Can you tell people where they can find you on the internet if they want to keep up with you or ask you for book recommendations? Yeah. So you may find like, where is that person on Twitter or Instagram? I know. I'm so sorry, but I am on LinkedIn. So Felicia Jones, P-H-Y-L-I-C-I-A and Jones are for pager duty. So you can easily find me there. I'm that person who will answer people's questions. So if you're looking for book recommendations, I believe in paying it forward. It goes a long way. So I've read a lot of books, a lot of perspective. I will resourceful. So feel free to reach out. If you do have a question, maybe mention that you listen to this podcast so I know where your questions are coming from. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've learned so much. Let's get into some end matter here. Yes. Tell me about your obsession. I'm very curious. Okay. So my obsession is I bought a new dress from Mr. Zimmy, which is an Australian brand that I discovered last year and am so obsessed with. They have really cute prints. And I I think the price point is pretty good too. Like the, the dresses are between $100 and $200. So they're nicer, but it's not break the bank prices. So anyway, I got this dress and it's, um, it's called the Lottie dress and it's a short sleeved maxi dress silhouette. And I have this like bright pink, red, blue pattern. I can't stop wearing this dress. I'm so obsessed with it. It's just like so happy and fun and flattering. 
I've never heard of that brand. So I'm very, <gasps> very curious. Not that I need to acquire more dresses because I really do not, but I'm still still very interested. I got a bunch last year and I really like them. The only problem with two problems with Mr. Zimmy or in general. So the first problem is that they have free shipping to the US, but they don't have free returns. So if you don't like something, returning it is very expensive. And I had this with another brand where I ended up buying things and having to return them. And the return was so expensive. So that sucks. Um, The other thing is that because Australia is opposite seasons, right now they have fall stuff as opposed to spring stuff. So you kind of have to buy (laughs) in the middle of winter for summer. Still. What about you? What are you obsessed with? My obsession is kind of inspired by yours. So I have written an article for Birdie about best work dresses. I included a bunch of pics I saw online based on reviews that were positive. And one of them was this dress from Anthropology called the Somerset Maxi Dress. It looked like the perfect sort of everyday work dress. It was black. It was simple. A maxi dress, elastic waist, flutter sleeves. And I guess it like drove a lot of traffic to the anthropology website because they reached out and they said, hey, we'll send you the the linen version. And I cannot resist a linen dress. I am nothing if not swayed by something that looks like I could be like wearing it at a picnic in a like Tuscan vineyard. But anyway, so I wasn't sure what to expect. And they sent it to me. And I have never in my life felt more instantly comfortable in a dress. Like it just had everything going for it that makes it a dress where you can throw it on and you feel great immediately. It was the dress I was wearing yesterday, Becca, by the way. It's so freaking comfortable and I love it so much. I want it in every color now. Sorry, Olivia. I can't talk right now. I am Googling this dress. (laughs) It's And it's in a million patterns. They have a short version of it. It's available in straight sizes and plus sizes and I think petites as well. And it has like a nice weight to it. It's not... It's, you know, I think 150 to $170. It's $168. Okay. And, you know, that's not necessarily in everyone's budget, but I feel like it feels like a great quality dress. It's lined. The linen is soft. It's not like that sort of scratchy linen. I just absolutely love it. And I'm really excited to wear it in Portugal and basically all summer long. There's a blue and white version, which I need immediately. But yeah, it's 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 a good one. I think I'm committed to this white one that has these brown leaves on it, which sounds ugly, but I'm into. I know which one you're talking about. There's a whole Somerset collection on anthropology because that's how popular the style is. Oh, wow. Well, I'm just going to leave this up and I will be getting this. But in the meantime, talk to me about books. I don't have a ton of updates, but I did finish Flying Solo by Linda Holmes. I had never read anything else by her. I found it to be so comforting and cozy. It's about a woman who has just canceled her wedding and she goes to clean out her aunt's house who has just passed away. And she finds this antique duck, wooden duck decoy. And it becomes like this mystery of the duck. And if you like antiques, there's a romance in there too. If you like either of those things, you might enjoy this. But I just found it really warm and cozy, kind of in the way that the unsinkable Greta James was. Like it wasn't necessarily that it had like some very, like a very specific distinguishing factor. It was just like, it felt like a warm hug. Like I I really enjoyed it. What about you? So I read Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. 
the book is sitting right behind Becca. She says this on my pile of books. So I'm very curious as to what you have to say about it. And I'd seen, well, I'd seen a lot of good reviews and I picked it up. It's an interesting plot that felt very different. So it's about, it's set in the 1960s. It's about a woman who is a chemist and ends up quitting her job to host a cooking TV show kind of akin to Julia Child and becomes massively popular. And it's not what she wants to do. She's doing it for the money. So she's kind of like, not. it's not against her will, but, you know, a lot of it has to do with sexism. I really enjoyed it. The voice felt very similar to Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Also never read that. Oh, it's one of my favorites. And so the voice was really similar to that about this like weird mother character who doesn't necessarily fit the stereotypes. I really enjoyed this, but I will say that it was hard to read at some points because of how blatant the sexism was, which was the point. But it was infuriating at points. Hmm. Okay. Well, I this was sort of – I was debating whether to read it next, but now I'm really, really curious. Also, the cover is – I love it. It's Me too. Beautiful, it's a great cover. Beautiful. Great colors. So that is what we have for you today. And if none of those books struck your fancy, we have our May book club pick coming up the last Wednesday in May. And we're going to be reading Funny You Should Ask by Alyssa Sussman. And this is a celebrity normal person romance about a journalist at an online publication who interviews this about to break out A-list actor. And the whole world speculates based on the article about whether or not they hooked up. And so the book is told in two timelines. The first one, when they first meet and do the first interview. And the second timeline is 10 years later, where they're reuniting. And she is uh, doing a follow-up profile to commemorate the 10-year anniversary. And we get to see kind of how they changed over the intermediary 10 years. I as a fan of celebrity normal people romances, unsurprisingly loved this, but Olivia liked it too. So it's not just me. I did. I really did. I read it. I had one final morning of vacation and I sat in the pool and I'm not kidding you for literally three or four hours. I read it cover to cover. Maybe it will take a little bit to get into for some people. It took me like a few, maybe 50 pages, but it is 100,000% worth it. It is just an absolute delight of a book. And if you would like more of us, you can come chat with us in our Facebook group. You can also follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And I'm at Olivia Mentor. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.